I do think it is our responsibility to reject scripts that have been written onto our bodies and to write new ones. Welcome to the Mindful Wealth Podcast. Stop financializing everything. What is true wealth? What's the right metric for success? Much of how we live presupposes that our incomes or spending is a good measuring stick. But can you really quantify success with a bank balance? Or should we include softer things like learning and love, generosity and gratitude, and happiness and well-being? Hi there, welcome back to the 31st episode of the Mindful Wealth Podcast. Today, Terry and I have the pleasure of speaking with Rebecca Walker. Rebecca is a writer, a feminist. She coined the term third wave feminist and an activist. She's authored and edited seven best-selling books, as well as developing and producing film and TV projects sort of across the spectrum, speaking at 400 college and corporate campuses. In short, she's contributed to you know, an enormous amount to the conversation about race, gender, and power over three decades. Her most recent book, Women Talk Money is a collection of 29 essays exploring the impact of money on people's lives, women's lives. We are grateful to have her on the podcast as a kickoff to our third season where we are focusing on women and wealth. So Rebecca, welcome to the Mindful Wealth Podcast. Thank you so much, Jonathan. I'm thrilled to be here and I'm happy to hear that the entire next season is going to be talking about this very important subject of women and money. So um, I'm honored to kick this off with you. All right. So as a kickoff question to the kickoff show of the season, this is the Mindful Wealth podcast on which we're interested in true wealth and true life success. So if we start with defining some terms, how would you define true life success? And in the parlance of the show, we call that true wealth. Mm -hmm. That's a great question. I like to, to say to friends and family, but, but primarily my, my closest humans in my life, that I feel success and, and deep happiness when I see them happy and when I see their success, because I know that that really reflects all of my, all of their, you know, work, obviously, and their, their karma and journey, but also it, it, it tells me that I'm doing my part in loving them successfully, showing up for them successfully, and making sure that my role in their, in their lives is meaningful. So I think that if I were surrounded by unhappy <laughs> people, you know, I would feel like impoverished, you know, fundamentally. So, you know, when I see them smiling, I, I point to that smile and I say, what's that smile? <laughs> you know, what is that? That's your happiness. And it gives me tremendous joy. I feel, I feel very, very happy and wealthy in those moments. You know I, would also, I would add to that, actually. I would also say that success for me has also been doing the work that I've done. This is actually my 10th book. And all of my work has been about helping people and myself to rewrite the stories and narratives of their, of their lives. My first book was a collection on, on feminism and, and inviting a new generation of women and men to redefine feminism for themselves. My second book was a memoir about growing up mixed race and and it was a story of black, white, and Jewish. It was a story of moving from a narrative of a, a tragic mulatto to a magic mulatto. And then a book on toxic masculinity of around men really redefining the story of what it means to be a man and on and on and on. All of my books in some way have attempted to make space for new stories. 
and to support people whose narratives are not included in the dominant culture, you know, or the status quo. And so success for me is also hearing back from the readers of all of those books and stories and hearing that they have been deeply impacted by them and in some ways inspired, supported, and, and held in, in meaningful ways. And so when I hear that, I feel that I have, that I'm really on the right path of living my purpose. And that, that makes me feel very successful. That is success for me, you know, making like the, I'm, I'm doing my work. I like the concentric circles. You, you hear that from your family and that makes you feel successful. You hear that from the larger community that makes you feel successful. Yeah. So the, the original reason that I wanted you on the podcast was the book prior to the most recent book. And we'll, we'll get to the most recent book too, but uh, was the, what's your story, you know, a journal for everyday evolution. Yes. Now in the world of money, in the world of personal finance, there's so many people that think that the most important part of that phrase, personal finance is finance. And I have always started with this idea that, that the personal is the more important, you know, knowing your story in the beginning is the more important. Yes. So when you, when you think across that book, what's your story and the book, women talk money, can you tell us how important it is to know your story before you start thinking and like chasing after money and financial Absolutely. success? Absolutely. Great question. And many readers have said to me, oh, I thought this was going to be a book, Women Talk Money. I thought this was going to be a book about finance, about how I should budget, about, you know, how I should invest, about da, da, da. And I say to them, you know, actually, this is the book before that book. This is the book that helps you to really understand who you are and what your relationship to money is and, you know, what you care about so that you can align your financial practices with your, your highest aspirations for yourself and the world. And you won't be able to do that if you haven't unpacked the story that you are carrying about money. So there are pieces in the book from so many different people speaking from so many different perspectives, but the main sort of, you know, arc of each piece is, you know, the beginning is, is asking the writer to find a moment in their lives that has been definitive for them in terms of, of their relationship with money. So Latham Thomas, for instance, who's a wonderful woman in the activist in the doula space, you know, who does a lot of work around black women and maternity and maternal death and infant mortality within the black community. She writes about, you know, her first memory of, of what it means to be a black woman with money was watching her mother, a real estate agent, go into a bank in Oakland with her commission check and have the teller basically say, you could not have made $23,000 legitimately, call the police. And, and her mother was escorted from the bank in handcuffs because there was this idea that to, that to be a black woman and to have money was you know, incompatible, anathema and illegal. And so Latham has been carrying this story her entire life. And so had established this relationship with money that was based in a kind of fear, you know, don't want to have too much because you'll be in trouble, you'll be judged, right? Don't want to go into banks, don't want to deal with financial professionals, you know, there's a kind of intimidation, there's a sense of uh, a lack of safety. And every piece, you know, we have people really looking at these moments in their lives that have shaped them. And then over the course of the piece, unpacking those stories in meaningful ways and figuring out how to let go of some of the, the, the stories and, and, and sort of traumas 
that have held them back from really understanding that money is a tool and that they can imbue that tool and use that tool any way they want, you know, and figuring out who they are in light of that and, and what they want to do moving forward. You know, what does currency become when you process through some of that, you know? So I think it's, it's very important. You know, we all have been given messages from childhood, from the culture about our own worth, about how competent we are in, in this arena, about, you know, we're, we're in, enmeshed in late stage capitalism. <laughs> you know, there's a sense of a drive to hoard, a deep sense of scarcity often. You know, when you're talking about women, you know, we've only been able to control our money really for the last 50 or so years. And so we're, we're working at a huge deficit, you know, in terms of feeling uh, knowledgeable, qualified, entitled to control our money and, and knowing what that actually means. And so unpacking all of, all of whatever it is we're holding is, is deeply important. And so it's a reflective process, you know, to get to the point where then you start talking about, okay, how am I going to budget? What are these financial products? Who am I going to talk to? Am I going to enlist people? You know, you, you have to figure out who you are because money, using money is a reflection of, of who you want to be in the world. And if you don't know who you want to be in the world in this, in this way, you can't, you know, you can't be in alignment. At the risk of opening up a, a can of worms, there was a recent study that was that talked about generational trauma mm -hmm. um, and how today people whose you know experiences hundreds of years ago you know were negative that's carried in their dna yes and if that's part of your story how do you unpack that that is that seems bigger than an, you know an individual's ability to unpack yes and i think that is 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 an indication of how hard we have to work both individually and communally, you know, because we have to then create new experiences that rewire our DNA back to a sense of health and well-being and, and understanding that our very DNA has been injured and traumatized and thus changed. I think, you know, not only explains some of, of, of what's happening today, but also gives us an opportunity to realize that we can change it again. And we, you know, it may take a long time and it may not. I mean, you know, we, you know, we don't know how this works in terms of time and, and the constructs of time. So I think it, it's, an, it's, it's encouraging in some ways because it signifies that things can change and they can change profoundly, you know, at the, at the cellular level. But it also tells us how much work we have to do to override. And that's where we have to activate you know, our mental ability and our storytelling ability. So we're in a kind of struggle, this, this sort of nature nurture struggle of understanding how we're wired and strengthening the muscle that we need to strengthen, right? To, to counterbalance what is happening so that we can do some kind of reversal. And it, it helps us, you know, to understand why we are in this predicament and to not carry a lot of the blame and the guilt and the shame that we often have as a community, people who have been traumatized in this space, and to think we are somehow incompetent, to think we are somehow, you know, that we that we should buy into the social cultural narratives of laziness or of incompetence. You know, no, actually, 
trauma has really affected our ability to, to be functional, you know, and to, and to meet the demands of this culture. So, so I think that's a relief <laughs> in some ways to know, you know, that there is a kind of scientific basis, you know, for, for a lot of what's happening. So I'm going to try and formulate my next question because I had a, you know, something scripted and then your, your previous answer, like added stuff to it. But so it seems like you're, you know, on the one hand, there's this sort of like big structural, kind of like a structuralist thing, which is that we live in these social matrices that have cultural constructs, constructs that have like social things, different kinds of trauma, different kind of prejudice, the role that women have played, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And then we have individual agency. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that you're spanning that gap a little bit with narrative. Mm-hmm. And what I found so interesting about this, you know, I, I did uh, actually a, a program called Future Authoring by Jordan Peterson. I guess it's been like whatever, a year and a half by now. And mm-hmm. what struck me was it's so similar to the exercises that you have. And the fact that two people, you know, from very different, let's say, perspectives could come to the same conclusion about the power of this. I I mean, self-authoring is a great, that's kind of what it is, right? It's like you reevaluate the narratives. So where does, where did you get those? Like, where do those ideas come from? Am I formulating it correctly? First of all, you're absolutely formulating it correctly. Where did those ideas come from? That's a great question. I think that I'll just start personally for me, they came from a sense of really understanding that I wanted to survive and I wanted to thrive. And the only way that I could do that was to find a narrative of someone of my time and my body and my background. So let's say a mixed race person who had grown up within the second wave feminist movement, child of divorce, you know, constantly moving around. I came to understand that, you know, people were seeing my story as a tragic, broken story. I was told a hundred times you come from a broken family, you know, interracial children are all screwed up. They don't know who they are. And I sort of looked for a different story and couldn't find one out in the world. You know, so I looked for books. I looked for something to tell me that that was not true. And I couldn't find that. And I realized that I would have to write that story into being for my own survival and health. And I was driven to be a healthy person. (laughs) Now that I I can't say, you know, how that happened, but, and I, well, I think all, all humans have that, you know, this, this kind of longing, whether they recognize it or not to be well, you know, and whether they honor it or not. So I think that was it. And, And there was a sense of, okay, I'm going to claim the parts of my experience that are powerful and that are nurturing and that are special that are, that give me a superpower as opposed to, you know, a tragic sort of illness, you know, and through the process of writing Black, White, and Jewish, I started to really sort of understand how to claim and rewrite the story. So, so that was a very experiential, you know, but I think also, and then I taught memoir for many years in which I was devoted to helping people to actually do this same work. So teaching groups of people who come in and, and it was amazing, every different group in the art of memoir, you know, came from all over the world and they all, each group for some reason was magically focused. Each person was focused on a very similar issue. So, or the same exact issue. So we had one group that was all dealing with sexual abuse and sexual trauma in childhood. One group was dealing all with the Holocaust 
and what had happened in their families in the Holocaust. One group was dealing with, you know, racial trauma. One, I mean, you know, one group was dealing with, you know, being indoctrinated into a, a spiritual cult. And so doing that work of, of sort of, for whatever reason, drawing people in to write their stories and to excavate these memories and to evolve into beings who, who were bigger than their trauma has been, you know, some of the most rewarding work I've done. And I've been called to do that. I cannot really give you the exact, you know, I, I think I'm fascinated by people's stories. I feel called and moved to find out what they are. I feel that it's part of my role in, in the world right now to, to help the evolution of people and, and figuring out their stories and that that will transform the world because it's those stories of survival and transformation and moving from survival to thriving that I think that we desperately need. You know, we need those models. But also there's the, the sort of neuroscience of it, obviously, the other side, which is, you know, we know that everything around us. And I, I, I suppose this is partly my Buddhist practice. You know, once I became a student of Buddhism 30 years ago and went deeper into understanding, you know, like quantum physics and, and so many other streams of, of thought that really all of this, this that we're looking at around us is, is simply materia that we are, our minds are writing stories on top of, right? So, so our mind is busy. That's what part of what it does. It tries to create meaning of everything that's happening to us. And so we're writing stories on, on things that are fundamentally, you know, we say in, in Dharma, we say they're empty. You know, they're, they, they don't have any, you know, this table is made of a bunch of different, you know, there's, there's water involved, there's material that we call wood involved. There's human consciousness that has decided a table is the right thing to, you know, an interesting thing to make, you know, but fundamentally, I could write a story of this table 10 different ways. This is the place where I work this. So this is a, a work desk. This is a, this is a slab of wood that ants and, and other things would like to use as food. This is a, a table that I'm going to bring my family together around so that we can eat a glorious meal and bond over conversation and food. I mean, so, so everything can be re-narrated and, and everything is constantly being re-narrated in our minds. And so it became very clear to me that once you understand that, your job is to try to write the best story possible that's gonna give you the most happiness and it's gonna be the best for everybody, <laughs> you know? So, so I think fundamentally that understanding and my personal drive to, toward happiness and, and well-being prompted me and supported me in this, in this journey. And as you're saying, structurally and, and culturally, I come from a family of activists. I believe social change is possible. You know, I wouldn't be here if my parents hadn't met in the civil rights movement and decided to get married when it was illegal to get married. So I believe that changing the story of our culture is as important as changing the story of our personal lives and that they're actually inextricable, you know. So therefore, that's where it comes from, you know. But I, I do think going back to my parents that, you know, when you are so forged in movements that challenge the dominant narrative, you know, whether it's around race or gender or class or power, you have an intrinsic sense that you can write your own destiny, that you, that you can change 
the dominant story. And, and you, you actually have watched people do that. I, I toddled around the Ms. Magazine offices. Gloria Steinem is my godmother. I was entrenched in feminist you know, ideology. When I went to college and people didn't want to use the word feminist, I was shocked and appalled. I didn't understand it at all. And, and, and so I, I just had this fundamental belief and knowledge that, you know, that we could change language in order to change consciousness. Hmm. You know? So the narrative of domestic violence, for instance, you know, that did not exist, right? The narrative of race, microaggressions, macroaggressions, institutionalized racism, you know, all of these, these words that have fundamentally transformed how we look at the culture you know, I, I sort of was born into that legacy of doing that. And, and so it all, it came very naturally to me for that reason. That's a very long answer. And I hope it's coherent in some way. It's a little early, but I think you get the idea. <laughs> so it's, it's a nature nurture thing, you know, and, and a dharmic thing and, and something that I care deeply about. It's all apart. I, I can't fully understand even, you know, I, yeah. People say, yo, this is your superpower, you know, when I'm working with people in, in, in all of these collections and working as a, as a teacher, you know, how do you move me from, from this place of stuckness and pain through that to a place of, of lightness and potential? And I, it just seems to be a deep part of of my purpose and what I'm here to do and and what I'm good at and what I love you know yeah I mean if I can just sort of bookend that I mean what I find so fascinating about what you're saying is that it really like makes one feel responsible or makes one realize how responsible one is for the narratives that we all inhabit right? Because it's one thing for there to be things circulating in the world and to have people write things on top of me, right? Because I think that's what we're talking about, right? Like I actually, so I have a master's in women's studies. So like I, I'm familiar with like some of this stuff and like, you know, that, that there's this thing that's projected onto women that we then get socialized into and inhabit, right? And so that like, but we're responsible for inhabiting it or not, and we're responsible for taking those things and making them ours or saying like, no, wait, I don't agree with this. And of course, if you're fighting against a structure that's been in place for thousands of years and people function in a certain way, it's complex, but yeah. that you as a little micro individual within that, you, your power is to narrate that into something different. And yes, yeah, absolutely. Beautifully spoken. You could have answered my question, the question you asked me initially. Absolutely. And I, I'm fascinated by that idea of personal responsibility in this in this area, I do think it is our responsibility to reject scripts that have been written onto our bodies and to write new ones. I, I do. I think it's it's harder for some people, mm-hmm. and it's a lot to say that that they're responsible when you know there's a lack of 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 understanding of the potential for that and how these things have been written on our bodies because our educational system is so poor because these narratives have been so you know, silenced and suppressed. And so, you know, responsibility is a, is a tough word. I think it is our right to be able to do that, our human right. And, and my dream is that more people have access to the idea that it is possible yeah. and that they have the support they need to be able to rewrite their stories and to reject certain scripts that have been placed on them. I felt that very strongly. I felt that in all of my work, but but I felt it very strongly when I did the book on masculinity, what makes a man. And I interviewed, you know, 200 men 
about the moment that they feel or the moments that they felt they were pressured or encouraged to become a man. And they all, you know, 98% of them said that they were either verbally or physically abused in some way or assaulted in some way or, or made to feel small in some way if they did not follow a few different mandates, if they showed mm -hmm. emotion, right? If they weren't stoic, if they didn't understand that their primary job should be to be a provider for their family, to go out and work and not ask any questions and bring home the money. If they did not feel inclined to be a soldier or a protector or a warrior on some level, they were basically terrorized into this kind of masculinity. And it was not this kind of innate you know, tendency toward these things. It was th these men identified specific moments when they had to let go of a part of their humanity. And, and that to me was so painful, you know, to see that there's a war on men in the same way that there's been a war on women, you know, to, to take on these scripts and that they, and that men in general are, are just starting to, to really embrace a movement to reject those scripts. I would say, you know, it's a very contemporary understanding, you know, I would, you know, last two or three decades, you know, and it's coming more and more now, but, you know, this idea of responsibility, all of those writers, the, the, the people I interviewed, and then the writers who wrote pieces for that book that described their process of how they were sort of indoctrinated into masculinity and how they worked to shed it, many unsuccessfully, really underscored for me the importance of giving them the opportunity to do that. All of them said, we've never had a space in which to do this particular kind of work. That has not been provided by the culture. That is not invited by the culture. That is not, you know. So again, it's it's making a space for people to exercise this right. It's helping them to understand that holding on to these old scripts are not healthy for them. They're not leading them to fulfilling lives. They are actually detrimental to them. And when we talk about wealth and power for men, the, you know, a lot of them that I spoke to, there was this idea that if they didn't conform to this identity, they would not be wealthy, they would not have power, they would not be able to inhabit these positions of control, that, that they were also being, <laughs> you know, indoctrinated to believe that they should inhabit. So, so the overlap there, I think, with money is very significant, mm -hmm. um, that that sort of wealth, the pursuit of wealth, the pursuit of being, you know, a provider, the pursuit of power is specifically within this definition of masculinity. And so if you fail to, to realize that and, and manifest that, you have failed at being a man. And so that is, is a space where I would like to see, you know, more openness, more acceptance, more understanding of the ways in which that is undermining the happiness of all the men who are existing in that space. They may have a lot of money, they may have a lot of power, but I don't see a lot of happiness. Yeah. I don't see a lot of joy. I don't see a lot of healthy families around them. You know, the, the thing that I feel is success. I don't, I don't see that often. And I see a lot of destruction in the wake of those identities and choices. So I would like to, I would like them to 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 understand that they have the right to rewrite, and so that was part of why I did that that book is to try to open up that space a little bit, mm -hmm. and 
And I hope it, I hope it's done something. <laughs> it's tough. You know, a lot of men have responded beautifully to that book and been very grateful. It was hard as a woman to, to do that book, to edit that book, you know, because there was a kind of questioning of my understanding of masculinity and the legitimacy of, of my writing it or editing it. And, but I think fundamentally it was worth doing, you know, just putting it out there. It was a long time ago. But. Yeah. And, and I, and it, it, it's actually, it, bring, it brings something up for me because I, I don't know you as the way I introduced you. I don't, I don't know you as the writer, feminist activist. So I didn't know about that book, but that is now on the top of my list. Like okay. literally I'm getting that book. I'm going to read that book, but you know, I know you as Tenzin's mom. Cause I was introduced by, you know, we were introduced by your mom a decade ago, you know, in an effort for college planning. Right. So it was like, like, I know you that way, not as the activist that you are, but I have always had this question. Okay. So for 30 years now, plus you have been fighting the fight. You've been talking about race and talking about gender and talking, you know, talking about masculinity and talking about all these things. Last week, or I guess, yeah, last week in the United States, like a lot of the things that that women earned or we earned as a culture were taken away by a new court, and and I, you know, I hesitate to ask this because it's 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 how do you keep fighting? Yeah, that's knowing that kind of stuff happens. Asking that right now. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't I don't know how yeah. you frame the question, but like let's let the guest uh, yeah, can, I mean, answer. Yeah, I mean, I think that for a lot of us, there's no choice. We don't have a choice. This is this is a matter of survival for us. Yeah, you don't you don't you you can't ever stop fighting because what what what's the alternative? You know, to to just sit down and and give up. I mean. I think that, you know, I have a son and I have an African-American son, which is a, a huge situation in this culture. You know, I'm afraid for my son every day, the way that black men, young black men as beautiful and smart and talented and tender and compassionate as he is, he is not seen that way as, as he walks through the world. So, you know, I have a wife. I have so many people in my life who are vulnerable, including myself. And, and we, we can't really stop fighting because if, if we do, we turn our, our most beloved people over to, to a culture that would just macerate them and us at the same time. So there's no, there's no real sense of, of going on. I mean, you know, of, of how do we go on? It's, you know, when I think about, you know, when I talk to, to Tenzin, my son, about some of these things we you know we both acknowledge at the end of the day you know 400 years ago we were enslaved you know 200 years ago we were enslaved uh -huh, you know the, the, you know the, the, less than that so the fight continues you know sodomy laws anti-miscegenation laws like none of us and, and our lives would not exist if it hadn't been for the work of others who stayed in the fight and so we still believe, you know, because we have to believe because we are the products of people who believed in much more difficult circumstances, who mm. believed we could be free, who believed we could love freely, who believed we could have autonomy and the right to control our bodies and reproductive health. Re so, Rebecca, I'm, I'm curious, just, just deeping it a little bit. How do you, it's not, I understand that it's not really a choice, no. but how do you, how do I do I, it? And I understand that I understand there's a motivation, right? I understand there's people that you love and you want to take care of. How do you maintain the belief that the outcomes can be better? And let me just 
put a little comma in there. Like I actually switched out of women's studies because like I, it put me in a position to be thinking through the world in a way that made me constantly angry. Yeah. And I made a decision when I was 28 to be like, I'm doing a PhD. I did a PhD, but in something unrelated, I'm like, I don't want to be a f- in the feminist space because I'm going to spend my entire life furious. Yeah. And so, yeah. Yeah. That's a great footnote to Jonathan's question. Absolutely. And I'll start there. I mean, I think again, you know, I turned to Buddhism. I turned to as many people turn to spiritual practices, you know, I turned to Buddhism as a, as a form of self-care in the face of unbelievable horror. And I, you know, I have a, a practice that allows me to understand that none of this is permanent, that none of this is inherently, you know, people don't, who aren't in the Dharma stream don't necessarily believe this, but none of this is inherently real in the way that many people think it is. So it, it can always be altered and changed. And studying Buddhism helped me to realize that fundamentally all human beings want to be happy, but that is our right. And that we can tap into that feeling of happiness through a process of understanding impermanence and understanding the nature of this reality. And we can, we can dwell there, that there is the potential to dwell in a space of equanimity in the face of all of it. That anger is an emotion, you know, one of my most important teachers talks about anger. You know, anger has, has different qualities. You know, anger has the tendency to become out of control, right? Anger, the first sign of anger is that you lose your peace of mind. The second sign of anger is that you stop caring about the feelings and thoughts of other people. The third sign of anger is that it grows out of control. It continues to escalate, right? And it leads to destruction. So once you have an understanding of, of these elements, you try to really exercise, like we're talking about working with the DNA trauma, you really exercise the, the, the practice, the muscle in your mind to understand that if you act and follow that emotion, there is nothing but destruction on the other side. There, anger is, is, you know, it can be galvanizing, it can be transformative, but it's very, very difficult to work with anger. You have to be very careful. So I understand what you're saying. And I think that the way that I have handled that is to become deeply, deeply engaged in a, a, a philosophy or worldview that always, when I, you know, the, the teaching, you know, always turn to the Dharma. Mm. I always bring myself back to these common or not common, but these, these basic principles, right? And that's part of my self-care. That's part of how I get up every day and do what I do and believe that things can change. But there's also within that practice and that philosophy, a sense of acceptance, you know? So not only am I holding the idea that, that things are impermanent, that we can impact change, that we can do all of the things that, that we're talking about, but there's also a sense of, you know, this impermanence means that we may not be here forever as humans, as, as individuals, and, and we, we are living in this and, and, you know, you really cannot begin to make good decisions from a place of heightened reactivity. You cannot, you know, it's just impossible. It's like another teacher, you know, when you plant wheat, you get wheat. (laughs) You know, you plant anger, you get anger. You plant discord, you get discord. 
you plant frustration, you get frustration. It, it's the nature of this realm. Mm. So, so you plant equanimity and acceptance and your mind calms down a little bit and you're able to be a little bit more skillful in how you respond to all of the things that are arising, right? Hopefully you're more able to make measured decisions and take actions that are not gonna cause more suffering for yourself or others. So I would say that, I, that that's how I handle all of it. If I did not have a 30 year Buddhist practice, if I had not been you know, deeply honored and blessed to have entered the Dharma stream, as we say, you know, to meet my teachers and to have very profound relationships with them, I'm not sure that I could have survived any of this without being racked with futility, depression, mm. rage. So, so that is my method, but, but many people, you know, there are many methods yeah. and I think you have to find your own. You know, many people feel that unless they are engaging things head on, unless they're down, you know, protesting, unless they're becoming a lawyer and arguing cases, unless they're, you know, whatever it is, they can't modulate the rage or the upset or the sense of futility. And this, this is my way. So we, we talked just before, just before um, launching into this, we talked about the last week I was on retreat and Devin Barry. Yeah. So I, I asked him a similar question, like, how do you deal with, you know, when it's out of control, how do you deal with it? And he, and he, he said very simply, he said, um, make it about love and make it predictable. So make it about love again and again and again. And he, he said that like that exact phrasing like four times throughout the week. And I was like, yep, that's exactly right. Yes, always turn your mind to something that is regenerative and open and will allow you to make decisions and to take actions that are on behalf of all sentient beings and our, and our planet and, and the multiple galaxies that exist. I mean, that, how else does one want to live, you know? I mean, but it does take this idea of repetition, you know, when you become a, a student and, you know, I don't know how this became all about Dharma, but, you know, when you become a student, you, you that is the, the beginning is, is understanding that just like when we're trying to retrain the DNA, when we're trying to change our DNA, it's repetition. It's figuring out, you know, sometimes in the beginning, it might take you three days to move from anger to forgiveness, to move from anger to equanimity, to move, you know, but the goal is to be able to do it instantly. And that's hard, you know? So when you see the great teachers, you see that they, they have gotten to the point where none of it really phases them. They're able to, they're so trained that that's where they live. And that is our, our goal, you know, but that does not mean that we are passive. That does not mean that we are not profoundly engaged in transforming the culture. Because in fact, it is that kind of peace of mind that we want everybody to have. I love that it became all about the Dharma. And I'm, I think Terry's going to bring us back to bring us back to the book. <laughs> yeah, I see Terry's like, okay, okay, okay. Dharma, Dharma, Dharma. No, it's, I mean, it's, 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 it's very interesting. And, and, you know, like, I don't know if this is this, part is this comment's going to stay in the interview and all we'll see but like i find that this like um sort of like toggling between different discourses and yes. like using like different sort of traditions to to deal with problems that are unsolvable within one specific way of thinking i just find that so fascinating and you know like this kind of 
tension between like, you know, in the individual and structuralism, right? Like mm-hmm. this is a tension that that realm of academia has not been able to solve. And mm-hmm. it seems that like the way to bridge that gap is with something spiritual or something having to do with narrative or mm-hmm. something that's like not from that discipline. And so like, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm happy and fascinated to hear this as a potential way of spanning gaps that are not solvable within that particular frame of reference. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. well, that's you're, you're <laughs> how old are you, Terry? Um, for, 44. <laughs> you're 44. Oh my goodness. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I just so, look young. <laughs> yeah, you really do. You look good. Um, not that we're, you know, idolizing youth or anything, but, but, but yes, I mean, I think that it's interesting to, to sort of see how your mind works and you are, you know, kind of highly analytical and sort of intellectual and, and really engaged in, in ideas and theories and philosophies and sciences, social sciences, and, and thinking about, you know, structural, all of the different things that you're bringing up. And, you know, one of the things that I worked with when I was when I was graduating from college, I too was very much in that space. And, and we're going to go back to the Dharma because part of what I had to do is realize that there was a vastness to my mind that was bigger than all of those ideas. Mm. And that all of those ideas that I was holding were, you know, and I talk about this when I'm, you know, I teach are, are the stars in the sky, you know, these, these, these ideas, you know, so there's, so if you get too fixated on any of those stars, you miss the fecundity, the fertility of the vastness and potential of your mind to have different outcomes, to have different ideas. And I think so much of what's happening in our educational system, including higher education, the university, PhD, you know, uh, there's so much of this focus on, on the stars and less focus on the potential for, for new, for, for something that we can't even imagine. And so I'm, I'm really responding to what you're saying. And it is exciting that there is this other narrative that can span and that can bridge. And I, I believe that that is also where new stories can be born, you know, that people get so fixated on the stars, which are their stories of who they are, that they miss the vastness and the ability and their own innate ability to tap into something that that never existed before or existed, you know, somewhere outside, you know, around the stars, and and that also has helped me tremendously in supporting people in telling and writing new stories for themselves. Just understanding the mind in that way and how mm-hmm. it works and, and just nudging people just a little bit, you know, tightness on, you know, around these concepts that have been authored by others, you know, even, you know, but, you know, political science, or, you know, these, mm-hmm. these are, these are also just ideas. This is mm-hmm. all one big experiment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what yeah, I mean? But it's- it's that there are these epistemological systems, right? Like there's the epistemology of the academy. There's the epistemology of the Dharma and the, the lived experience of various things. And like, diff- there are different ways of knowing that bring you to different, different conclusions. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly right. And, if, and, and I would say, if you're talking about responsibility, it's, you know, because that is part of your language and epistemology, I would say that it's your responsibility, people who have the, you know, to figure out what their story in relationship to all of this is going to be. 
And I think you did that by deciding that if you stayed entrenched in the gender studies, women's studies within, you know, that you would be angry your entire life and you did not want to want to see the world through that lens. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because, and so a part of you was choosing a different story for yourself that would lead you to greater health. And mm-hmm. then I think yep. possibly and probably, and, and it seems to be uh, still a space where you can support women, where you can be active in different ways to bring what you know about that situation to bear, you know, and, and to really make change, you know, hopefully. And, and so I think that's, that's very, very important. And you, you have rewritten your story in a very meaningful way. You know, that's a big decision. I did something very similar when I started third wave in, uh, in the early nineties, third wave started as the third wave direct action corporation. I wrote a piece in Ms. Magazine called becoming the third wave after the Clarence Thomas hearings and Anita Hill testimony and published it in Ms. Magazine. And we got hundreds and hundreds of letters from young women who also wanted to be the third wave. It was called becoming the third wave. We are not, you know, we are not, I forget what the line is, but, but basically we're not, we have no illusions that, that the work is over. We, we are the next wave that is coming. And so I founded this organization and we started to do direct action. So we supported, you know, lesbian kissins on Republican governor's lawns. We supported Latina women who were fighting prison being built in their neighborhoods. We did a massive voter registration drive in inner cities across America, bringing together young people from wildly divergent backgrounds, from dissidents from China to Muslim women from, you know, Bronx to trust fund babies, you know, in the, in this idea of sort of forcing people to recognize that we had a common goal, which was at that point to make sure that people felt enfranchised enough to, 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 to get that administration, the Bush administration out of office and a new administration that would be more supportive to, to all of us who are on the margins into, into office. And then as a result of that and, and other work that I was doing, I was approached by the DNC and, and there was this sense of, you know, do you want to be a politician? Do you want to move deeper into politics? Should we support you? You know, what, what, what do you want? Can, is that something you want? And, and I decided that no, that was not what I wanted. <laughs> and I left third wave as a, a founder because I felt very restricted by the mandate that I be this kind of figurehead who was always looking at things through this activist lens. And as a creator, as a creative being who's ready to write books and do the work that I do, I felt incredibly stifled in, in, that, in that role, in that story. And so I said, no, you know, thank you very much. And proceeded to do what I do. And I think that was an, a very important moment for me. And I'm so glad I made it. It was very difficult because there was a part of me that thought I could make some change. I could do, I could really, you know, back then it wasn't, you know, perilous to actually be, you know, in, in the realm of politics. I didn't think my life was, you know, in danger, but I had to think long and hard about it because I felt I could make some, I could make a difference in that space. And I had to believe that following my own sense of self-preservation and longing as a creative person was the best, the best path, the best story I could write for myself in that moment. And I think those are very important moments to reflect upon, you know. And when I work with people, 
I ask them to think about those moments when they decided to claim something different than what they were given. And what happened there? Why did they claim that? Why did they choose that? Why did they move in that direction? And should we build on that? Should they, should they move, remember that feeling and, and, and those, those assessments or not? Were they, were they, did they lead them in the wrong direction? You know, so, so yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode with Rebecca Walker. If you enjoyed the conversation, you can tune in for part two of this episode in four weeks time. If you found this content interesting, please share, like, subscribe. We're also taking calls for guests right now on the Mindful Wealth Podcast. So if there's someone you'd like us to interview, someone you'd like to see on the show, please don't hesitate to drop the name in the comments or else shoot us an email. Thank you for listening.